Hello from Cyberry and Delinea, and welcome to the show. If you've been enjoying the Cyberry podcast or 401 Access Denied, then make sure to like, follow, and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcast at cyberry.it. From all of us at Cyberry and Delinea, thank you and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of 401 Access Tonight. I'm your host for today's podcast. I'm Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist and Advisory CISO at Delinea. And I'm really excited. It's Welcome back to another awesome, amazing guest. So um, this guest has been on previously and has been one of our top-rated podcasts to date. So it's great to welcome back uh, Dustin Evil Mog. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, can you tell us a you know, for the audience, a little bit about who you are, what you do, and uh, some of your, you know, things that you love to, to to break and have fun with. Yeah, not a problem. So, hi, I'm Evil Mog, otherwise known as Dustin Haywood. I am now the Chief Architect of X-Force and Senior Technical Staff Member at IBM X-Force. So that covers Red and IR. I'm also known for my exploits on Team Hashcat, where I'm known as Evil Mog. We've won Crack Me If You Can for a number of years and come in second for others. Um, I collect black badges as a habit. Yeah, I'm black badge to DEFCON, um, DerbyCon, rest in peace, as well as uh, a few others like Chicago's uh, ThoughtCon, etc. And I do a lot of password security research as well as Windows Active Directory and now lately weird Telnet security research. Awesome. Is the, is the Church of Wi-Fi making a comeback this year? Uh, we are absolutely <laughs> making a comeback this year. I'm actually performing Renderman's Wedding down the week before De- the weekend before DEFCON in the full ancient Church of Wi-Fi tradition. So that should be uh, unique. So for anyone who's who's going to a Black Hat and DEFCON, that's definitely going to be an entertaining show this year for what DEFCON 30. Um, I guess it's going to be a big one for everyone. <laughs> Yeah, I'm also running a contest at DEF CON this year again, because I also run the uh, DEF CON MUD. So for those who don't know what a MUD is, this is going back into the 90s. MUDs were text-based games that were the precursors to all modern, massively multiplayer online RPGs. So this is the text-based versions of it. We're bringing back a new and far more evil one again. And because it's a sanctioned DEF CON contest, I usually give away like a DEF CON ticket to the next year. Awesome, awesome. So how many, how many black... Black badges you had now. Was it two or three? Three? Four. Four. Okay. So well. my first one was to um, SkyDogCon, which was yeah. a little conference out of Tennessee. It no longer exists. Um, this actually started the Black Badge curse. Yeah. My second one was to DerbyCon because I got awarded DerbyCon 8. Mm-hmm. DerbyCon cancels DerbyCon 9. I won my Black my DEFCON black badge at Hacker Jeopardy the year yeah, before the I pandemic hit. <laughs> oh, yeah, you were there for that. I was there for that one, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so we won that one. Then DEFCON ends the next year because of the pandemic, so it got canceled. So the joke is, every time I get a black badge, the you know, conference gets canceled. <laughs> it ends. <laughs> yeah. So. The, then I bought one for um, Chicago's ThoughtCon um, at one of their auctions so I could help uh, – them deal with some of their pandemic expenses. Okay. Then we won one at Hacker Jeopardy. And so I gave the one I bought over to one of, the, one of our members and kept the one that I earned. So, I mean, you want to call it four and a half, five? <laughs> that's pretty impressive. You know, for, for many, getting one is a lifetime achievement. So that's, you know, run the applause. That's, that's definitely, you know, amazing achievement. Uh, can you tell, tell, tell the audience, how did you get into password cracking and cracking passwords in the first place? What was your, what was the, the thing that brought you into that journey? Um, 
you know, that was entirely accidental. Um, so what happened was I used to be a network engineer. Um, of course, because I'm a candidate, I can't say I'm an engineer. I was a network technician over in Afghanistan hooking up comm towers um, as a civilian contractor. I came home and then I got a job. Someone took a chance on me as a security analyst. So I was working at a government-owned bank. And we had to go start doing Active Directory password audits because people were reusing passwords. And so we started doing this on a weekly basis. And then I'm like, you know, I need to get some more power. So Hashcat was just in the pre-alpha stages. You needed like a beta key to use it back in yeah. 2010, 2011. Um, so I got involved in the uh, IRC channels, et cetera. And we got invited to go help out with uh, Crack Me If You Can because I was good at analyzing patterns. And then eventually we started building a large GPU farm at the last company. And we got involved in everything from Drown to a number of academic papers. Um, and then we just kept bringing larger and larger amounts of hardware. <laughs> and then I, that's actually how X-Force stole me is they needed the password guy. And you know, I got poached and it's been bliss ever since. That's awesome. So, so I mean, uh, many of us in this field, we kind of fall into the areas, you know, mostly because of kind of, we kind of focus on a specific area that we enjoyed and we just basically get embraced into it. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, that becomes definitely, you know, the, the, the expertise area. And, and it's a lot of fun as well. So, um, question, what, when, when you get into this, I mean, what's, what's some of the things, the shocking things that you see in the state of passwords today? I mean, what, what's the challenges? What mistakes do we commonly find? Um, how attackers been successful? You know, what's what's let's say the top five mistakes that you know people make. I want to say the biggest one is reused passwords. And this has been the same problem since the seventies. I mean, the password really is just a shared secret. There's nothing yeah. special about it. It's just something a human can type in. Um, the thing is, we as humans are incredibly intelligent people, but our Long-term memory, and even our short-term memory, sometimes can be a little shoddy, especially if you're trying to remember a long sequence of strings. I'm not going to remember 400 different passwords. The problem is, in order to stay secure, I need 400 different passwords on every single site. Yeah, so you got some options. What do we do with this? You know, We can write them down, we can use password managers, or we can reuse the same password between environments. The biggest thing with, with um, passwords, though, and I would hate to bag on Microsoft, but I'm going to for this moment, and I apologize <laughs> sincerely. Windows passwords, predominantly in a desktop and server environment, are based off of a protocol called NTLM. NTLM is basically MD4, which was, quote, broken back in the 80s. Um, it is the fa single pa fastest password um, to crack on GPUs, but that's not the problem with it. The problem is, in Windows, Password hashes like NTLM, not V2 or V1 or Kerberos or whatever else, but straight NTLM are password equivalent. So even if you have a 128-character password, the second somebody like a storage admin leaves or a Windows AD admin leaves or there's a breach or there's a pen test, that secret becomes known. And that secret can be reused as if it was the password, so they have to get rotated. Now, obviously, NIST special instructions state we shouldn't be rotating passwords, which is great for things like your password manager. If you didn't have a really good, strong, complex password with multi-factor authentication on your password manager, that's perfect guidance. But people say we shouldn't be rotating passwords because a NIST is most end users or even sysadmins, like myself, get lazy. We use a variant of the same password. The only good secure password, to be honest, is one that's randomly generated and looks like line noise. Um, 
The other issue we've got is length. Now, because of this, you know, say you're brute forcing a password. You know, I can go randomly guess an eight-character password that a human generated mm -hmm. thanks to the three of four rule. Um, the three of four rule, which is basically you have to select a digit, a um, uppercase, lowercase, or a special, and I have three of those four, actually allows us to reduce the search space a fair bit, especially on an eight-character password in Windows. Um, a standard GPU or like a 3080 or a bank of uh, 16 GTX 1080s can brute force an eight-character password in less than eight hours. Mm -hmm. um, so at this point, an eight-character password is effectively dead. A 12-character password will take you brute forced, let's call it uh, 34,000 years, assuming mm -hmm. it's randomly generated and looks like line noise. You know, roll your face across the keyboard a little bit, and you should be okay. The problem with this whole process, though, is most users will select something like summer 2021. Yeah. Or 2022 now, sorry. We're, you know, or spring 2022. <laughs> it fits within the range. These passwords are easily crackable, and those things will rotate. So yeah. the only truly properly good password will be one that's randomly generated. If you have a random 12-character password with special characters and everything else, the sun will go out before I randomly guess it, unless I'm really lucky. And being as I haven't won the lotto and retired yet, I mean, good luck. So that's the real big issues we're seeing with passwords. But you know, say we advance upwards to modern mm -hmm. Ubuntu, um, just as an example, or most modern Linux. They use salted SHA-512 um, crypt, which is massively iterated. Trying to brute force one of those will take you a million years at 12 characters. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm saying. 12 characters is now is roughly about the correct length for a password, as long as it's yeah. randomly generated. If it's not randomly generated... If we're, leaving yeah, it, if we're leaving it to humans to decide on what yeah. the password is. We, 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 we do things that are, make us remember. And that's the, that's the thing is when we're looking for something to remember, we'll use something that's easy to remember. And one of the things as well is that um, when you're looking, you know, to create your rules and masks and try to get an idea of how to reduce that rule set or that word list down, what I end up doing is looking at that person's history of password choices because you, you, you can find it. Most of the people on this earth have already been the victim of basically, you know, password disclosures, uh, either being in the hash format or being in the clear text. Um, so having already had your previous password kind of decisions and choices exposed means an attacker can simply take that as the base and start creating, you know, variations of that. Um, and it's very, you know, it's very common that people will, will take that same path. Just like I said, spring, summer, you know, winter, you know, 2022, um, add an exclamation to the end of it and you're done. Um, and we know that that's the trends and the habits. So absolutely moving human, you know, humans should not be creating passwords. They should be creating passphrases, not passphrases. Plus, a multi-factor should be what's protecting um, the password manager, and the password manager is doing all the randomly generated credentials for everything else. Um, and you know that means that you know the difficulty on an attacker being successful significantly reduces. Oh, absolutely. And I think what companies should be doing. Um, I know this is also aimed at some consumers, but companies especially should be issuing employees smart devices that are out of band from your typical Windows. And the reason for that is your smart device has things like device attestation keys. You can find out if it's been rooted. There is secure elements that you can store your password managers in. Like a mobile device is far more hardened or can be far more hardened, not in all cases, but in most cases can be far more hardened than your typical PC. So say, you know, a company pays $800 plus, you know, 40 bucks a month for all their employees, and then they provide them with a password manager. That's a huge step up in security for 
what I'd argue be a cheap investment compared to the cost of a breach. Yep, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things as well. I think organizations should look beyond just their employees and really kind of look into, you know, your suppliers, uh, into your contractors. And one thing I remember years ago, one of the organizations that I was, you know, contracting consulting for, and it really changed my mindset when, you know, they realized that security starts with your social, your social network around you. So why not even get the, your employees' families using it? Um, reward mm-hmm. them. Reward, you know, that becomes a, become a reward. It becomes loyalty. You know, they see that you're not just taking care of the company, but you're actually extending security to the social sphere, to their family, so that their family and kids can even extend to using password managers and reduce the threats that it is. Because attackers will actually target them first as stepping stones to get into your organization. So why not extend your perimeter to the social sphere around the organization? your supplier, your contracts, your partners, your customers, and everybody. I think businesses now that's actually going to implement, you know, logon um, uh, kind of systems to their websites or to their applications. Password managers should be something you should be looking to integrate into um, as part of that default implementation. You're moving away. I, I, I hate the term security by design because security by design doesn't necessarily mean it's on, unused. Yeah. I want to get to security. One of the CISOs I remember having a round table last year, they said they said the term, it needs to be security by default. And that's what we should actually strive to get to. And I think that's one of the important things is when, when we're looking at implementing these, it should be, be you know, it should be on by default. Uh, well, it should, should also be more than just on by default, right? It should be on and usable by default. Yes, it's just thing. Every time we implement a security control, if it slows things down and adds friction, people are going to bypass it. Yeah, we as security engineers, yeah, they're going to write it down. We need to understand that we are here to enable the business. The brakes on a race car aren't there to make it go slower. They're there to make it go faster. Yeah. If you make things easy, people will comply. If you make things hard, they're going to work around it, just like people stick webcams pointing at the you know, multi-factor <laughs> authentication tokens so they can go sign in if they forget <laughs> it back at the bar. They take or pictures, house or whatever. take photos of yeah. the passwords so they can remember. Absolutely, you can run. I mean... When I look back in a lot of the breaches that I basically was investigating, you know, and looking at, you know, you, you find in the desktop, clear text files, passwords sitting in them. Um, you go into one thing, even the browsers, everyone goes to their browser and the browser loves to ask you for your credentials to save them. But again, by default, the browser has security turned off. You go to the password tab in the browser and all the passwords are there for basically, you know, for, for, for you know, for taking. Um, And there's Mimikatz modules to go extract that straight out of your browser. I mean, that's one thing red teams love to do this on versus a password manager is far more secure. And I'm glad you brought up the whole, you know, companies should give password managers out to employees. Big Blue does that for every single employee. We have an option for our entire family to be covered by an enterprise password manager that is separate from our work password manager. Mm -hmm. So we can wipe the work one and they transfer the personal one over even if they separate from the company. So it's a huge win. I think making it portable, making something because you want security to to continue with that person's journey for the rest of their life. You don't want to you mm-hmm. know, all of a sudden you know take security away from the person. You know they become vulnerable. So it be something we should embrace. And it makes you know that for me that's the organization's giving back to society as well as as a greater kind of is is bringing security up. What's what's some of your favorite tools? I mean you know there's lots of of you know password cracking tools out there. There's lots of tools. Some of my favorites, you know, like uh, Cool or um, Hashcat, John the Ripper. What, what's some of your favorite tools that you enjoy? Uh, Wordsmith 2 by um, Sanjeev Kawa, who's now actually an X-Force Red employee, um, is one of my favorite tools. What it does is you go through and it says, pull me down the word lists from all of 
this particular region or here's the geographic specific ones for say oh. Estonia, Calgary, here's the one for Chicago. And then to use that with say targeted rules, oh, it is so deadly. That's that's pretty that's cool. That's actually to to did because absolutely because one of the things I used to see in Estonia was a lot of the typical brute force or you know cr- cracking would not work because of the character set that Estonia uses. And if you're able to take that and customize it down and use that as your base word list that for commonly used credentials from that region, that definitely significantly reduces your you know potential word list down and also you know your your success possibility. Um, that's pretty cool. I'll have to check it out. It's one that one, I've still been using, you know, Pipol and Cool and others that you know create word lists, but um, I haven't checked it out yet. So it's definitely one of my, one of the things I'll be looking uh, in my free time next week. Yeah, and it's an older tool. I mean, last release was about 2019 or so, but it's still been highly effective. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, there's a couple of standard you know, word list rules. I'm still, you know, I've got a couple of rules in uh, Hashcat's default, like generated two dot rule that was all done by machine. It's still effective. Mm-hmm. Um, biggest thing though is word list and attack management. The rest of the tools like MDX Find, John the mm-hmm. River, Hashcat, etc. Um, they're all fairly effective. My favorite tool is one I wrote myself because obviously I'm biased. Um, <laughs> I'm, allowed a tool, <laughs> I'm allowed to be. Yeah, there's a tool called the NTLM V1 Multi Tool, and it's based mm-hmm. on research from Moxie Marlin Spike back in the day, whereby NTLM version one effectively takes an NTLM hash and then uses it as the key for generating your NTLM V1. So um, what we can do is you can reverse that using a known ciphertext or a known plaintext attack using Desmode 14,000. It'll output, here's the hashcat specific format for reversing that to an NTLM, or it'll also put the crack.sh capability so you can use their FPGAs. And so you can draft, if NTLM version one's turned on or MSChap V2, those are basically instantly reversible now these days with uh, some magical hashcat shenanigans. So those <laughs> protocols should probably be deprecated sometime soon. Even if the character the password is 128 characters, it'll reverse it to an NTLM that can just be passed. Okay, so 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 it automatically makes it weaker in the result. In the result. Oh yeah. It, well, the nice part is the attack path looks something like this. Say you run Petit Potam or Print Spooler against a domain controller. You get an NTLM version one response back for the computer's machine hash. You then turn that into an NTLM hash, sign yourself a Kerberos silver ticket, DC sync, you've popped the DC. Total runtime, 15 minutes. <laughs> so for a warning for anyone who's actually you know using using that technique today, that's probably a warning that you probably should you know revisit it and uh, consider uh, changing it. A question: What for, for different types of password cracking? You know, from doing let's you know the traditional type of NTLM or network NTLM um, to uh, SSH uh, keys, and also to, for example, uh, different hashes. You know, whether it being uh, documents or um, browser database key databases. What different techniques do you use? Do you use the same technique for all of them, or do you try to augment your technique based on the type of you know uh, uh, hash that you're trying to you know crack? Well, obviously, you're going to have to change your technique depending on the hash. Um, I split my techniques into three major categories. So there's really slow hashes, such as your bcrypts. Those, you're using basic word lists, very few modification rules. Um, you know, if you're only doing 1,000 hashes per second on a GTX 1080, yeah, you're not really getting much out of those. We do a lot of CPU-type stuff mm-hmm. on those in order to get things to go faster. Um, you know, like The IBM power systems are great for those. Yeah, not to advertise or anything like that, but yeah, when you've got that much horsepower on a say a Power 10, oh, it's gorgeous. 
Um, but for a medium hash like a Kerberos uh, Mode 13100 or the TGS Type 18s, those I'm using, you know, best 64 with smaller word lists or, you know, smaller word lists or, or with larger word lists rather, and then smaller word lists with a bunch of advanced rules targeting specific information such as, you know, Wordsmith 2, Cool, etc. With faster hashes, I call it the um, excrement against the vertical air displacement device method, which is basically you just throw whatever you can at it randomly. And it's all about diffusion effectively. I'm trying to you know, spray as much of that password space as possible. So I'll do things like use attack mode A1 with the uh, left side and the right side using expander and cut B. I will use Prince Processor in a technique known as Purple Rain, where basically you take a word list like Rock you, you pipe it through Shuffle, you pipe it through Prince Processor 16, you pipe that into, or Prince Processor, and you pipe that into Hashcat, and then you give it 100,000 generated rules and just sit there and see what happens. You turn on debug mode, capture what works, and you use those in yet another attack, and you start this grind. Um, that'll get you at 50 60% faster than using most generated word lists. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll also pipe in like long collections of previously cracked passwords, um, like crackstation human only, hash mob, um, hashes.org, those kind of word lists. Mm-hmm. Or I'll just go randomly generate things. Like I've got a set of rules that are designed to crush a GPU. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about a gig of rules. You would never want to use this normally unless you're running out of stuff or you're trying to you know, break in a, a new cluster. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's really good at finding faults in your build, especially when you're using, like, say, generation or uh, times one PCI Express extenders as opposed to the full bus, etc. So there's techniques like that that get really aggressive. Um, I'll brute force update characters now on NTLM because I can. I never thought I'd be saying this. You know, ten years ago that was unheard of. So also, what what other what techniques are gone? You know, you know, old techniques such as rainbow tables used to use. Yeah, rainbow tables are still used, um, so. but they're not used in everything. Rainbow okay. tables are very algorithm specific. Mm-hmm. Like if I see Landman, I'm still pulling out rainbow tables. Although Hashcat's now faster for those kind of attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a rainbow table for des key cracking. That's what you use in the NTLM version one reversion to NTLM. Mm-hmm. So we will still use those on large banks of FPGAs. But otherwise, rainbow tables have kind of gone the way of the dinosaur. Word lists are kind of king, especially with proper intelligent password cracking rules. Straight up brute force isn't used as much as most people would think. Mm -hmm. Um, So those tables that people say, here's time to brute force a character password, take those with a grain of salt. People love to put them up and rant about them every year. Mm -hmm. But a large number of those are based off of here's 440 v100s in a cluster that will cost you you know ten thousand dollars an hour on cloud Mm -hmm. i mean yeah people are spending that kind of money if they've stolen a bunch of money but you're more concerned with you know your average hobbyist with the 16 gtx 3080s sitting in their basement that used to be a bitcoin mining rig (laughs) so they're going to repurpose the password cracking exactly speaking of your bitcoin mining rigs or your um, cryptocurrency rigs do not make decent hash crackers but hash crackers do make decent mining rigs and the reason for that is mining rigs that take certain shortcuts that work great for blockchain but the way hashcat stresses a gpu you will set your house on fire if you're using some of those techniques Um, Mm -hmm. we've seen fires caused because of shoddy components the little ribbon extension cables um stuff like that tend to or tend to or tend to cause fires 
And then also Hashcat, when you put like four rigs on a house on, say, 110 volt, you're mm-hmm. going to exceed your amperage rating in the house. So what, what it means for, for anyone for anyone looking to get into into you know specializing in pastors and cracking and you know becoming an expert you know in, into pen testing and helping organizations find uh, the best way to protect what type of hardware do they, you know do they need to to kind of really get themselves either get started or at least look to get into professionally what's the hardware baseline somebody would you know the baseline I would consider as normal is any of your modern um, gaming GPUs like I run an mm-hmm. old GTX 1080 still at the house because I haven't upgraded yeah. my gear mostly because I use cloud <laughs> um, a lot of people using like the GTX 3060s 3070s 3080s you can do a lot of damage with just one of those cards the key is make sure you understand the power one of those systems fully mm-hmm. spec'd out is going to draw about 1200 watts and then by the time you count in conversion losses, et cetera, mm-hmm. if you're using, say, a bronze-based supply, you're looking at about, let's call it 9, 10 amps from the wall. Mm-hmm. And yeah, your average house, they say it's a 15-amp circuit, but there's also efficiency losses going out to the panel. So mm-hmm. you can easily hit 15 amps and start breaking breakers if you go much beyond that range, if you have other stuff on that circuit. So make sure you know, you're running from your panel to your passer cracking rig is appropriate for your job mm-hmm. and then make sure you've got appropriate cooling but beyond that you should be pretty much good to go um nice part about hashcat is you can detune it a little bit to, mm-hmm. to use less power just don't say you know hey look i you know if your cooling's not sufficient your power is not sufficient don't complain about your hash rates yeah. um split yeah. them up or start you using some cloud all the clouds expensive yeah. yeah yeah do some optimization and find out what your what your rig's capable of and make sure you don't you know exceed the limits you know set set some limits where actually you know going to you know find out what your capabilities are from the hardware you know understand them and then you know make sure you don't exceed them you know because yeah. I've seen- and airflow is life is the other thing yeah. um you need adequate airflow i mean a lot of people do cracking on these little uh intel nucs or these little small board computers mini itx's those work absolutely fine just don't stick it in like your home theater cabinet with no airflow. Yeah. Um, you know, a hash cracking job at full load will probably push you about 82 Celsius at the card and internal case temps are get really, really high. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't really want it to exceed much beyond 85, 90 ish. I mean, I've seen some cards hit 110, like the older AMDs and that's just a recipe yeah. for, Oh my so- God. So is liquid cooling any effective better than airflow? What's the is it is more? liquid cooling if you have the case room is more effective. That being said, in a corporate world, liquid cooling adds points of failure. And when you mm-hmm. take one card, it's okay. But when you times it by thirty-two cards, you need to move to enterprise liquid cooling solutions, such mm-hmm. as engineered fluids, immersion cooling, those kind of techniques. Unless you have a really good hands and feet arrangement, and you want people to come, and you can get people to come in to swap out video cards it's not going to be a nice solution so that's why a lot of enterprises go to air cool i mean yep. ibm uses liquid cooling on our mainframes and it's just gorgeous but it's an engineered solution okay it's very very specific for that that system itself so question when we met the last time and we had a lot of discussions around you know the future side of things where, where things are going and i do i have to put my hands up to one thing you know we've had a lot of discussions you know, we talked about you know, biometrics um, getting kind of effective at, you know, I will say biometrics replace usernames, not passwords, but they have security, better security attributes. There's one thing I remember, you know, even we talked a lot about password lists. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I was always referring to is that, you know, I don't see passwords going away and password lists doesn't really change the password. I do have to correct myself in that area because I did have a, a very, it was a really interesting discussion with another counterpart who's been working in moving more to passwordless. 
my kind of mention is, is that it's not the passwords are, are not going away. It's that secrets are not going away. There's going to be always a secret. It, and it, it just comes into the definition or what we are referring to, what is a password, because I always refer to it as a password as a deviation of a secret itself. Um, but yes, passwords are changing in how we interact with them. But at the end, there's some type of secret exchange that's happening in the background. So I just have to clarify, I was always saying that it was a password or a key, but just to get into the right terminology, there is a, some type of secret. <laughs> and that secret is either you know dynamic or static, depending on the type of uh, algorithm or system that's been used. Um, so that person did correct me, and it was actually really great because it was a very in-depth conversation. So what's your what's your views on you know, where's the future going with passwords? I strongly agree with this, to be honest. Um, we've been experimenting. Let's look at SSH, for example. Um, we evolved from the password to the SSH public key, and now there's new techniques such as SSH certificates, which are completely different from X.509. So what we're seeing now is companies are tying in a short-lived certificate generator that's tied into, say, OpenID Connect or um, SAML-based authentication, multi-factor authentication on the back end based on everything from your IP, your telemetry information, all the way to your MFA answers to your geolocation. All these things get combined into a risk, and they make real-time risk decisions. If you pass all the risk decisions, so let's say risk-based authentication, they issue you a short-lived certificate that's valid for logging on to SSH. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's things with Windows where they're tying into Windows Hello, yep. where they can issue you a short-lived certificate to log into Windows. And then the machine certificate is randomly generated in the back end. So this is the essence of when people talk about passwordless, what they're really talking about is shifting to more machine-managed secrets yes. with risk-based authentication of the end user. And I'm all for it. This is turning into beautiful things, like things like password <laughs> managers, short-lived certificates, short-lived authentication, um, QR code-based authentication by you know taking a phone, scanning a QR yep. code, signing in out of band. Um, these are all the things that were actually forecast back in the 70s with things like trusted computing and hardware devices and trusted path. It's just we've evolved the technology to be actually end user friendly and, now. And usable. I mean, that's the great thing yeah. is that it, it really, because I will say that it's moving, you know, I always say it was moving passwords into the background. It's really moving secrets into the background. And as you're point on, pointing out, is that we're really making, now that that becomes much more possible to make context based security decisions based on many different factors, that actually removes that decision making, you know, as solely on the user solely on the person that's interacting. So we're making it less interactive. You know, that experience is much improved, but there's a lot more sophistication and complexity in the background that has to be also done correctly. Um, I've seen bad implementations of it where it still becomes a static password that never gets changed. And all of a sudden, that's what's been unlocked. And if you capture that in the network, you can basically expose that and abuse it. So to your point, what you described is for me is one of the ideal scenarios. If it's basically short-lived certificates, um, it's dynamically created based on the security context at that time, with other additional security factors, multi-factor. You know, how long was the last time you signed into? What location you're signing in from? Is this machine known? Does it meet the security um, requirements in order to access this system? Um, is the system you're accessing highly sensitive, and therefore maybe require uh, require different types of additional access workflows, like I need my colleague to approve this 
for me to access. Yeah, the whole system. four eyes process as opposed to two. Yeah. And I'm kind of glad you brought up the whole um, static secrets piece as well. I'm, I hate to bag on NIST again, but I'm going to get back into this. Yeah. Is I got into a debate on Twitter the other day about how I greatly dislike this um, <laughs> special instruction. And the reason for that isn't that, you know, I don't believe end users shouldn't have to rotate their certificates to their password manager. However, secrets in general do need to rotate. Just because here's the thing, breaches happen, data's get out there, secrets are only secret as long as nobody else knows them. Exactly. And in order to keep that, they have to be frequently rotated, but that process shouldn't be user-driven. It should be fully automatic. Um, it, the user doesn't need to know, hey, I've got 400 passwords and they're all rotating, here's my password list. They should be notified when the change fails. Yes. Um, same deal in the corporate world. You know, a service account password should not live for more than, I want to say a month. Right now, the current standard's a year for most places or never. Like, they never change. Um, how many companies changed their KRB TGT hash in the last 10 years? <laughs> if, if, right? un, un, unless they have the rebuild director directory. <laughs> or unless they got pen tested that showed up in a pen test format. And even then, half of them ignore changing it. So or, stuff they, like or they, this. Or they only do it once and forget that they need to do it twice, actually, to properly rotate it. <laughs> Yeah, so public service announcement, if you have an Active Directory domain, which is most of you, change your KRB TGT hash once every six months. This way, you're guaranteed debit rotated twice at least within a year, and you won't break all your Kerberos tickets. Yeah, and I, I think you probably, because I had, I think a few years ago when, when this brought out that recommendation to, you know, you don't have to rotate your passwords if you're using multi-factor authentication. I've got into arguments online about that um, with others as well. We, we've had disagreements into, you know, I always say it's all about the risk that you're willing to accept. What's the mm. risk you're willing to accept? Um, if you have multi-factor authentication, and we have to remember, not all multi-factor authentication is the same. So, and there's bypasses to it, right? There's, there's lots of backdoors. And where and where's people saving their, their backup keys or their MFA? Oh, yeah. Like, for example, in one, their phone. <laughs> so. so let's just say a popular enterprise password manager, so I'm not you know, advertising for other folks, happens to allow you give you the option to store your authentication secrets right in the password manager. So you go to your password manager, go to the ClickUp, and look, here's my MFA ready to rock. And it's like, okay, I mean, the whole point of MFA is to have my password stored on my cell phone separate from my password manager or wherever else they are. So... I get the convenience factor, and I'm all here for it. But the same token, I just kind of cringe a little bit. De-risk is the most important thing. Is you don't want to keep all your eggs in one basket. Therefore, if whatever it is that's sensitive in your password manager and you're using multi-factor authentication, sometimes use another method of storing that. Um, as you know, for me, I use multiple password managers for that specific purpose. I've got online and offline. You know, I've got basically isolated and segregated systems. So to make sure, at least you know that if I ever need to, I can go to it. But I know that if if one's compromised, it doesn't impact the other. And that's well, and here's the other thing. How many people also back up their authentication secrets like via printing out a rescue kit? <laughs> what happens, say, I have a house fire, as an example, and I lose my phone, I lose everything else, and I can't get into any of my systems. Now, maybe I managed to get out with my wallet tops. Trying to get those reset, next to impossible, um, especially in this day and age. So make sure you go and you print off your backup options, store it in a bank yeah. that's double guarded by guys with guns so they can't, you know, people can't get in and steal it or because find something that your, works for you that's your digital life if you lose access to it i mean i've had people you know come to me and say you know you know they've, they've had account takeovers 
or their mm-hmm. you know social media account, which is critical to the business, is now all of a sudden stolen and they don't no longer access it. Or the website domain that they were managing, um, the basically you know the, the people you know basically took it over and they've no longer access to their entire website and their user database is all in there. Um, and you know even access to the banks and so forth. So you end up in a situation where you get these you know stolen uh, accounts that you need to have ways to get, re- regain access to it. You need to have ways to be able to you know get back into those accounts. And if you're basically if you don't have those you know systems or you haven't implemented the restoration, that becomes really devastating for a lot of people. I've seen people you know lose their business as a result of not having that backup um, those keys. Well, here's the other thing. You know, say the untimely event. I I take part in uh, lots of extreme sports. So say I die. Oh, yeah. Who? How are people going to get into things like my financials? You know, stocks, etc. I keep a emergency rescue kit with my will, and it gets updated routinely. Why? Because I want to go bequeath my massive iTunes collection out to my family. As an example, <laughs> like I spent a lot of money on that. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's the same Same you get into not only, you know, your music store, but also your movies. Um, you could get into, as you mentioned, your stock options, you know, other types of things you maintain. I think one thing that I had, I had a good experience recently where I was actually a bit worried about at the beginning was actually um, migrating to a new, new mobile phone. And I remember in the past, that was always, especially for someone like myself. I've got, you know, like you, when we talk about the number of accounts that we have to manage because we have different personas and different accounts and systems, and we sometimes go a little bit crazy. I think I've got, you know, well over 500 different accounts that I have to manage with different passwords and credentials and different multi-factors for different things. And it came to getting a new phone, and I cringed at the the idea of having to reprovision and move things across. But I actually found that what, you know, today, a lot of the systems have actually made it much easier. There's a few things that I did have to get reset to move across, but um, the experience was a lot much easier than what it was maybe three, four years ago. Yeah, so, like my authenticator app got transferred over automatically. Like all the secrets and everything yeah. just came on over, and I was shocked. Yeah, that, even that itself, because it used to be, I think one of the things in the past that always, uh, I think for many organizations, especially when you talk about security, and if they're moving between security solutions, I remember one organization saying, that it wasn't the security solution that they're worried about. It was the time, basically, when they had to uninstall it and the systems were not being protected. That was, you know, the fear. You know, so some you know, years ago in the past, when you wanted to move MFA across another phone, you sometimes had to disable it, basically, and then re-enable it on the new phone. And it's that time frame that's when basically you're most exposed is when you have to go through those processes of disabling security in order to, to migrate it or transfer it or reprovision the new system. Oh, yeah. Migrating was, security yeah. solutions is the worst, right? I mean, remember when RSA yeah. got breached like back in 2012 yeah. or so? We all had to go swap out of uh, secure ID fobs on the new ones. I mean, they've improved <laughs> since then. But it was just a nightmare. I mean, people had to go change the new hardware tokens. And imagine issuing out, say, 1,400 tokens oh. across your workspace. It's the same. I mean, in Estonia, we we haven't we've had the same same experience. I mean, fortunately enough, through the years, Estonia's been quite you know back. It was the the first time we had the issue was back in two thousand eight. Was we were heavily dependent on timestamping protocol within the browser, and in two thousand eight, you know, Google decided to end of life Chrome uh, support for timestamping, and that meant that our ID cards that we use for literally everything in Estonia, from voting to banking to you know prescriptions to loyalty cards to even getting getting on the tram it meant that in 2008 there was uh, something like 50,000 cards that no longer worked with the chrome browser 
And that actually created a big issue. And it ended up meaning that in order to find ways in order to resolve that, it introduced this piece of software that you had installed in your computer that will actually regenerate the keys and, 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 and apply a new protocol to the card. So it was great. That solved that small issue for those 50,000 cards because, of course, we've got 1.3 million citizens who's using this system in the background. Um, fortunately enough, it was limited to only a, a set of people. But then fast forwarded to, I think it was 2017, 2018, when Estonia then decided that they were moving from their old legacy uh, smart card systems to a, I think it was a Gemelto based one. And about a year after those new cards were issued, um, what happened was they found that there was actually a flaw in the actually uh, key um, module that they're using to generate the keys in those cards. And ended up meaning, I think it was 800,000 at that time that had been since issued that meant that they were now vulnerable. And, um, and would have had to been, you know, if, if they didn't have that system that they sold back in 2008 to fix the Chrome browser issue, that was the same system that, unfortunately enough, had allowed them to regenerate the keys on the people's computers. And that actually saved them having, from having to go and reissue all of those cards. So sometimes, I mean, these systems are not always perfect. You do have bumps along the road. But it's how you're able to resolve the issue and how you make it usable for everybody and how that experience is, is what basically is the decision between people continuing to adopt it and embrace it versus those who decide to change path and, and look for something else. So I think it's really important. We will always have these bumps in the road. We'll always have uh, vulnerabilities in encryption. We'll always have uh, challenges in migrating. And we'll always have you know systems and applications, you know, end of life in some type of protocol. And we just have to find ways on how to make sure that we continue maintaining that standard of security uh, as we move forward. Well, I'm glad you bring that up, right? I mean, here's the thing. We we focus a lot on how do we prevent the breach or you know, what do we do, you know, let's call it left of boom. Mm-hmm. But what we do right of boom is just as important, right? I mean, you know, how you respond is absolutely critical. Uh, we talked about, you know, some places when people get breached, hey, it's a resume generating event. <laughs> but, you know, here's the thing. If I was a CISO, I'd be talking about, hey, these people just went through the most expensive training money you can buy. Mm-hmm. Why am I going to fire them when I can use this knowledge to make this place more secure? Um, same deal with how do you recover from a password breach? I mean, you know, if you just rotate your passwords once and call her a day, have you really fully recovered? Unless you get into, you know, hey, we've changed our processes and the way we operate to make sure these get rotated again routinely. You know, you'll, there's no such thing as a failed pen test, for example. Um, yeah. The only failed pen test is one where you don't learn. Yeah, you don't you don't change the the you know from the lessons and experiences that you you find and discover, and I think that's really exactly. I think I think that you know I I think cyber insurance is important in this regards. I think cyber insurance does help organizations at least provide that financial support when they do you know and you know become a victim or have an incident, but you should not be that should not be the dependent only thing that you do in a breach you know part of a breach is that that helps you support it financially but you have to go and you have to find and discover how that initial foothold happened how they get in how they elevated credentials and you have to go and, and that's the thing and it shouldn't be your company doing it right you should typically have an ir company on retainer and the reason for that is you know lawyers and insurance companies love to see an independent third party do some of this um there's evidence preservation there's a number of things that you can spoil real quick if you're doing this yourself and many organizations, one of my things that I've, I've been kind of, my, my motto I've been doing the last uh, year and a half is that there's the difference between having an instant response plan, which is one thing. That means, okay, it went through and you got your checklist and it's sitting on a SharePoint. 
but there's a big difference between being incident response ready. And that's completely different. I mean, I, I, the last thing I want to be sitting in an incident response meeting is trying to agree on what time format we're going to be using for gathering images. What, yeah. what use, what wasted time is that? It should have already been planned beforehand. Next thing, okay, where are we going to store these images? Well, we don't have enough space because all of a sudden, you know, you need terabytes of data uh, to store all of these images of, of victims' machines. And the last thing you want to be doing is now doing a same-day delivery on Amazon and hoping they get there in time that you can actually... That's, you know, that's the difference between having, you know, uh, one is having a plan, which sometimes gets encry- <laughs> encrypted with a ransomware on the SharePoint <laughs> and if you don't have an offline copy. But the next thing is having, having readiness. And that's why I always say it's important to have retainers with incident response experts who do this day in, day out, and, and who have the knowledge about how to make quick decisions and actually can quickly move along to where you actually get proper containment very quickly. Um, because you know, and there's also things like out-of-band communication, right? What happens yeah. if your VoIP system's been encrypted by the ransomware? How are you contacting people over compromised systems? Do you have backup solutions in place? Have you practiced these processes? Are yeah. they reasonably fresh? Or are you reaching through some locked file cabinet in Zurich somewhere <laughs> trying to go find it and send people on an international flight to go pick the thing up? Like, Absolutely. I mean, as I will even say that even the accounts, this is what gets into the, the access that your incident responders have on the systems as well to do the forensics evidence gathering, to look at the audit logs. The last thing you want to have is them using the same accounts which are compromised by the attackers. <laughs> and all of a sudden now you're contaminating evidence. You're contaminating you know, the, the evidence you know, process as well, which potentially even puts you into a situation later where you kind of use it in a, in a legal frame as well. Um, so it's really important to make sure that you, you know, with the emergency responder, you've got accounts to set up specifically for that purpose that have no previously contamination. Or a process to create them rapidly, because who knows, those yep. accounts could have already been compromised. Absolutely. And you know, to create them and, and, and deploy them um, and give them access to the systems they need to. Absolutely. Uh, so I think it's always crucial in incident response, especially for organizations, especially when it comes to, to, to credential compromise, how quickly you can rotate those credentials, how you can make sure that you can actually determine were they actually laterally moved to in the environment? What did they have access to? Um, did it expand to, to cloud environments as well? Um, one, one thing, that's a question I've got for yourself as well, is that now, you know, a lot of times it's been basically isolated to a lot of on-premise. What, what do you see with the cloud side of things? Um, you know, I've I mean, seen, cloud I was talking to really- Carlos, Carlos Pollock a few weeks ago, and he was talking about this purple panda, which is now doing, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, privilege elevation, escalation um, scripts for cloud environments. Um, so what, what's what's happening on the cloud side? I mean, cloud really is no different from on-prem. I mean, it is different. I don't want to go say it's not. Um, but a lot of the same processes still work. You know, create new accounts, isolate the systems, copy things over. Nice part about cloud is you can do cloud to a cloud account transfers. So what we're doing at IR, for example, is we have a dedicated cloud account just for capturing those IR images. And you do a inside, let's use Amazon as an example, an inside Amazon to Amazon transfer. So you're not paying massive data mm-hmm. egress fees. You say you're transferring from Amazon to IBM cloud, you're going to be paying data egress fees out the nose. Um, mm-hmm. Same deal with Azure's or you know, whatever cloud providers are all out there. So really, it's as long as your incident response provider has mm-hmm. experience in cloud and a cloud plan, you're largely good to go. If you're large enough that you can do your own internal IR, then obviously people are yeah, already building up contingencies 
ready to rock. I've seen everything as weird as sending an Amazon snowball or whatever their big truck is <laughs> out to the system, plugging it into the data center and driving it out to do the forensics or, you know, driving out massive piles of trucks and getting you know the data shipped to them. Um, so it just adds a little bit more logistics, but it's, yeah, moving data around is the global economy. So it's yep. really no different, even though it is different. No, absolutely agree. So we kind of want to get one final question in from you. Um, so, and this is coming back. This is the, the big question. I, is passwords going to die? Are they going away? Or, or, you know, or is it, we should refer to as, as secrets going away? Um, no, I, I will see so. the secret evolving. I, yeah. we, it will never yeah. truly go away. And the reason for this is not all systems can be connected to the internet. In fact, not all mm -hmm. systems should. Let's look at SCADA and OT as an example. Yeah. Those systems, I'm not going to connect to a giant enterprise password manager. We're going to go manually rotate those uh, secrets. You're going to need to authenticate those things while you're out at some power station or whatever else. Secrets aren't going away. Um, we still need some way of exchanging data how we access them, how they get managed will evolve. But, you know, they were effective tool for the last, let's call it 50, 60 years or even longer, however long computers have been running. They're going to continue to be there. It's just how we access them, how we manage them will evolve. Yeah, and the experience, I think, it's from the user experience is definitely evolving. Uh, but I agree with you. I think, you know, it's a lot of those systems, you know, it's got to control their lifespan, you know, seven to 20, 30 years. You know, you know we're not going to be changing satellite stuff frequently. So um, I don't see um, a lot of those kind of more critical systems changing very fast. But yes, for the human I think I'll retire before they go away <laughs> is what will happen. That's what it makes it. That's you and me both. That's it is. So, uh, but, you know, Dustin Evilmog, it's been awesome having you on the show. And I always, I really always enjoy talking about uh, password cracking and techniques worse evolving what's been changing um any final thoughts or any words words of wisdom for the audience if you don't have a password manager please go out and get one they've improved so much in usability over the last couple of years i'm still trying to get people to go use them that's gonna be my manager for the next five six years but get a password manager get unique passwords between systems back up your secrets somewhere safe in case there's an end to your digital life um, or some other major event, but just please get a password manager and make sure that your passwords are unique between systems. Absolutely. Yep. Evil Log, Dustin, it's been awesome having you on um, and it's been a pleasure. You know, it's great to have you back on again and I'm pretty sure this will not be, you know, you'll hopefully be on again in the future. Uh, we'll definitely yeah, I don't think this will be the last. <laughs> it will not be. Uh, so for the audience, again, you know, you've heard uh, the latest updates and where passwords have been coming from and where they're going to. Um, and uh, hopefully this has been educational, enjoyable for you. Stay safe out there. Again, tune in. You know, this is a 401 Access Denied podcast every two weeks, bringing you thought leadership, expertise, knowledge, and information sharing on the trends in the cybersecurity industry. So stay safe. Take care. And thank you. Dustin, you've been awesome. Thank you. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrary for Business by going to www.cybrary.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Delinea. Thycotic and Centrify are now Delinea, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit delinea.com.